0: to all of you. It's good to have you here and uh, to see so many of your wonderful faces. Hope you guys are enjoying the weather. If uh, you're joining us online this morning, I want to let you know that we're going to take communion at the end of the service, and so you might want to grab some bread and some juice, and then you'll be ready for us. If you came in here this morning and didn't get uh, communion set as you came in, we have some in the foyer. You can grab that. Uh, if the sermon gets boring, you know, that'd be a good time to go uh, do that. I'm kidding. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. We'll dive into the sermon. Father God, we thank you so much for just a beautiful week. Uh, but more than that, we thank you for uh, a beautiful Savior. For one who came and did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. For one who came to seek and save the lost. That was us. Those of us who were utterly lost in our sin. Not only lost, but Scripture says we were your enemies. And yet... Even then, Jesus came and died for us. I pray this morning as we uh, look in your word, as we think about this, as we ponder this, as we study it, that you will take us to a new place, both of understanding what all this means, and that you will take us, uh, our hearts, to a place of greater appreciation for the truth, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So uh, if you've been here for a while this summer, you know that we are making our way through something called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is, a, is an interesting document. We, we've told you this many times. But uh, the Creed is, first of all, the oldest and briefest of the creeds that the church has. We believe that the first versions were probably written somewhere about 180, 190 A.D., uh, they were used primarily for people who uh, were interested in being baptized, and they would be taught through the creed. Um, the creed is the briefest of the creeds that we have. It it doesn't cover everything that can be covered, but it, encu- it covered those things that were important uh, in those days to uh, faith and to understanding what it was to be a Christian. Um, it basically takes about a million words of the Bible and distills them down to about roughly 111, and it is recognized by all Christian traditions, which is amazing because it's the only creed that is. And when we we say the creed out loud, just as it would have been um, throughout the centuries, it is a rejection of our culture. And we've been reciting the creed each weekend, and I've reminded you, it really is a rejection of the things that our culture holds so dear today, things like humanism, that says that, that humans are of prime importance. When you recite the creed, you're pushing back on that. We are saying there's something even more important than you and than me and than human beings. It, it pushes back on the idea that um, as human beings, if we, just, if we just try hard enough and if we just educate people well enough and if we just throw enough money and resources, we can solve any of, wor- any of the world's problems. And the creed pushes back on that and says there's only one solution to our problems, and that is Jesus Christ. It pushes back on the philosophy of materialism, that the only thing that is real are, are, is the physical world. We say that we have a soul, that we have a spirit, that we were created by God in his image, that we were created to live forever. It pushes back on deism, the idea that there is a, a God who created the universe, kind of wound it up and pushed it off in motion and doesn't get involved. We say, no, we have a God who is imminent, who is involved in this world, in fact, who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we recite the creed, and it's kind of a radical thing that we do. And we've been doing this together, and each week I've been kind of putting some blank spaces in there, because by now, I know many of you probably have the whole creed memorized, but in case you don't, let's just, let's kind of walk through this together, and you can fill in the blanks as we go along. Ready? Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, Almighty, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Very good. Now today, we're going to be covering this idea here that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. So many of you I know are very familiar with the story, but I thought it might be good for us um, as we think about these things this morning to maybe just do a a deep dive into Scripture uh, to read a little bit about the crucifixion of Christ and to kind of get our ourselves into that context. Um, After three years of public ministry, um, we know that the Jewish leaders conspired to have Jesus put to death. Um, They were absolutely dead set on doing away with him because he claimed to be God. So they paid uh, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, to betray him so that they could know a time and a place away from the crowds where he could be arrested. Uh, That took place. Uh, He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and they took him uh, to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. It was an illegal trial, uh, even by their own rules. They accused Jesus of blasphemy and found him guilty of that. Uh, We know when we read the story that they spit on him, that they struck his face with their fists. Eventually, they took him to Pilate, uh, who interrogated Jesus, sent him to Herod, uh, who also interrogated him and wanted Jesus to do some miracles and answer some questions. When Jesus wouldn't do any of that, he sent him back to Pilate. We know that Pilate and Jesus had a long conversation after that. Uh, Pilate basically found nothing guilty in Jesus, worthy of death, and and he wanted to release him. uh, But the crowds were really dead set against it. In fact, there was an annual custom where uh, the governor would release one criminal. And so he offered what he thought was a clear choice. They could release Barabbas, who was a thief and a murderer, or release Jesus, who was guilty of no crime. We're going to pick up the story there in Matthew chapter 27, verse 21, and I'm going to read just a part of the story for you. Now the governor Pilate again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has this man done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Some people said that was the most meaningless hand-washing in the face of human history. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him. They laughed at him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him again of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when Jesus tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. They were wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Ali, Ali, Lema, Makathin. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs also were open, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. We know after this, Joseph of Arimathea came and asked Pilate for the body which was an unusual request and wouldn't typically have been done. Usually, for someone who was crucified, their body would be thrown outside of the city in a trash heap. And yet Pilate gives Joseph the body, and Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. And so the Creed lays out some very basic facts for us. It talks about Pontius Pilate, that Jesus was crucified, that he was dead, that he was buried. So there are some basic facts, and I know that even as I read the story, Probably many of those things were very familiar to you. We've talked about them before. You study them. You you kind of know what this means and what the point is. But I think it's important for us to remember some of the very basic facts of this story. It tells us, first of all, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, now many people have noted, it's interesting, there's only two names uh, of human beings that are mentioned in this creed. There's Mary, that uh, we talked about last week, and there's Pontius Pilate, who is... Kind of a creep, and so people wonder, you know, why why didn't they mention somebody like why why not Peter, you know, why not why not John, why not go back and talk about the lineage? Maybe maybe mention David, maybe mention Moses. Well, the reason that Pontius Pilate is mentioned here is because it anchors the story to a very specific time in history. We know that he was the governor of Judea from AD twenty six to thirty six. So it's a it's a way of putting the story of Christ. in in human history. It it, it grounds it for us. It would almost be like if someone said, you know, uh, Pastor Bob was born when President Eisenhower was in office, and during that month, John F. Kennedy became president as well. It would tell you several things. I'm very old, and uh, it would let you know exactly when you can kind of put my birth in human history. This is what it's saying, that God himself entered into history in a very specific place, in a very specific time, in order to seek us and in order to redeem us, he suffered during the time of Pontius Pilate. It says that he was crucified. So, you know, we talk about crucifixion. We have a, a picture in our head of what crucifixion looks like. We know that it was perhaps the most brutal form of execution that has ever been invented. Uh, we know that the Assyrians invented it and the Romans. Uh, like to say that they perfected it, that they made it as painful and they made it last as long as as possible. And crucifixion wasn't merely about killing someone. It was actually about far more than that. It was about public humiliation. It was about a deterrent. It was meant uh, so other people would see it and not do what that person had had been um, convicted of. If possible, we're told, the the criminal would be crucified at the exact location of the crime that they committed. Or if that couldn't be done, they would do it on a major road or, or a highway or a city center. They wanted everyone to see it. In fact, uh, sometimes we don't realize that, that when people were crucified, it wasn't like the cross was 20 feet high. Sometimes they were just elevated a few feet off the ground. And you might be walking to work one day, and there would be somebody who, who had been crucified. They were on that cross, and they would still be alive. And you would walk by them, and you would look in their eyes, and, and you would see them suffering. And the, the whole point was, don't do what this person did, or this will happen to you. It was a powerful deterrent. The victim would usually first be flogged, that is, whipped on the back, um, and then they'd be forced to carry their crossbeam to the place of execution. They would be stripped naked uh, to humiliate them. Their arms would be nailed to the crossbeam, it would be raised up. Romans didn't like to talk a lot about crucifixion because it was just such a brutal part of their culture, of their society but you can read a little bit about it here and there. Uh, The Roman writer Seneca wrote this, and he didn't write much about crucifixion, but in one account he wrote this. As he was walking through town one day, he said, I see crosses there. Not just one type of cross, but they were made in in different ways. Some hanged their victims uh, upside down. Some impaled uh, their victims. Others were stretched with their arms out on the crosses. And they note that death didn't usually come from the loss of blood. It it usually came through suffocation because if someone hung on the cross as their their body would slump down, it would be more and more difficult to breathe in to get air in their lungs. And so sometimes what would happen is their their feet would be nailed into the cross and they would push up uh, with their feet as painful as that would be just to get a breath. And, And sometimes they would even put a seat on the cross to prolong it even longer. So maybe they would sit, but eventually they would become so weak that they could no longer push up. And they would suffocate to death. Jesus was crucified. It goes on and says that he was dead and buried. That he was pronounced dead by the executioners. That his body was claimed by Joseph of Arimathea. And it's interesting because a few commentators note something about the burial in particular. That Jesus' life was what we might call a a constant downward humiliation. Humiliation. That he went from heaven uh, down down to our world, which was humbling in many ways. He went from uh, glory into a body like ours, which again would have been humiliating. He went from a place where his will was always perfectly done to a place where people that he had created were rejecting him, were resisting him. Where people actually had the gall to betray him. They would mock him. They would spit in his face. They they would abuse him and eventually crucify him. Now usually we're told that a a criminal's body, part of the humiliation is, after they died, the body would be taken to the outskirts of the town and it would be thrown on a dump where usually animals would come and dispose of it. Uh, And yet Jesus received, we're told, a dignified burial. He ends up being buried in a rich man's tomb. And some theologians have noted that, that actually we think of often as the resurrection as the turning point, that it's been down, 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 and now it's a turning point and now he begins um, to be glorified. But in fact, some will say that his glorification actually begins in the tomb because he's in a rich man's tomb. And so now things have begun to, to turn around. It's the beginning of his exaltation. But think about this. Christianity makes a very unique claim amongst all religions and philosophies. We basically say that the founder of our faith was rejected and was put to death because he was a threat to the peace of the community in which he lived. Now, when we think about crucifixion, we don't, because we've never really seen one, it it doesn't, it doesn't mean to us today what it would have meant back then, and when we think today maybe of having a cross, uh, maybe on a necklace, or you know when you walk in our house there's a cross on a table there, it it doesn't, it doesn't tend to mean to us what it would have meant back then. A cross back then was, was a scandalous thing. They've said that it might be a little bit like maybe somebody dying by electric chair today, and then people uh, having a little electric chair fastened and put it on a on a necklace, or you walk into someone's house and there's a little electric chair statue uh, in in the entryway. That's kind of what this was like. It was was scandalous, and yet this was the symbol of Christianity. It was the death and the burial of Jesus. But you may have noticed that when we read the creed, there's something about suffering in there. It, It doesn't just say that Jesus died during the time of Pontius Pilate. It says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I am going to talk a little bit about that in the time that we have left. It's been said that evangelicals tend to focus almost exclusively on the substitutionary death of Christ, but that Jesus did not merely die for us, that he also suffered for us. And I don't know how often we really think about the suffering of Christ and why that was so important. One writer put it this way, Jesus knew on the cross all the pain, physical and mental, that man could inflict, and also the divine wrath and rejection that our sin deserves. Why? Why is all the wrath of God poured out on Jesus on the cross? I I read one commentator that said it's basically the equivalent of divine child abuse that God would put His Son through this. Why would He do this? Well, we could say it's because our sin is worse than we know and that God's love is greater than we could possibly comprehend. So I want to talk about that for a minute, the idea that our sin is worse than than we know. See, we live in a culture today where the biblical concept of sin, we're told, is outdated. We've, We've outgrown the need for an understanding of sin. People today say that right and wrong are subjective, right? We hear all this All the time now, you know what's right for me might not be right for you. You don't tell me what's right for me. I won't tell you what's what's right or wrong for you. That that sin is this construct that only produces guilt and produces shame, and and it holds us back. We hear this a lot today. The idea of sin basically just holds us back from becoming the people that we want to become, and that people are basically good. Now, again, we hear this all the time. It's it's hard not to laugh when you hear this. What could it possibly mean when people today in our culture say that people are basically good? One writer put it this way it's kind of like people who say, I lie, but I'm not a liar. I mean, I lie sometimes. I'm not always told the truth, but I'm not a liar. Uh, I get angry sometimes, but I'm not angry. Right? How many of us have said that? Okay, so I yeah I get angry uh, every now and then, but I'm not an angry person. I I've, I steal, I, I take a few paper clips from the office every now and then, but, but I'm not a thief. Uh, I strongly dislike some people, but I'm not hateful. Uh, I I gossip every now and then, but I'm not a gossip. Right, how many people say that? I, yeah, okay, I've gossiped a few times, but, but I'm not a gossip. I, I, I cheat sometimes. Uh, I covet sometimes. Yeah, I, I, okay, I've judged a few people, but I'm not judgmental. I'm basically a good person. This is, the, this is what our culture says. Again and again, I do these things, but that doesn't make me that person. See, Jesus' death reveals the fallen nature of everyone. That's one of the things we find in this story. Pilate, of course, had a role to play. He passed the final judgment on Jesus. The Romans, uh, the Roman government, they were the executioners. The religious leaders, they were the ones who drummed up the charges, who who had Jesus arrested, who insisted that he be crucified. Uh, The crowds were the ones who yelled, crucify him. Uh, We can carry it all the way down to individuals, right? Judas is the one who betrayed him. uh, Peter is the one who denied him. I think it's safe to say that we tend to be biased in our evaluation of at least our own sin. We tend to really downplay our sin and oftentimes magnify the sin of others. And this is, this is part of what we deal with. So years ago, um, we had this old white van. In my family, and, and uh, I was the one who was, would drive it at near the end of its life. Um, it, I would only drive it in town because it would only go 25 miles an hour, and uh, it, it barely backed up, and it was really worth nothing. And one day I was driving down East Street, I think I was coming to the office in the morning, and I was at a red light. And uh, somebody was coming up from behind me, and I could just see in the rearview mirror that they were preoccupied, and they were going to hit me. And sure enough, they hit me and kind of pushed me out into the intersection. So we, you know, we pulled over, and they got out of their van, and I got out of mine, and we kind of looked around, and they were kind of scared and freaking out. And finally, I said, you know what? It's, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I'm fine, and this vehicle isn't worth anything. Uh, so you know, no justice is necessary. We don't need to call insurance companies or anything. And they went on their way, and I went on my way. It was just my old white van. A couple of years later, I replaced the van, and I was going through Starbucks. Uh, I was going through my, in my RAV4 and I was, uh, there were so many cars at Starbucks that it was I, I was out waiting in the parking lot. You know how you kind of go out there and, and there's somebody in a parking space and I was just waiting to, to go through drive through, and they started backing up and they're coming right at me and I thought, no, they're not going to, they're not going to. And boom, they just backed right into me. I was just sitting in the car and the guy just ran right into me. Pulls forward, gets out. He's like, oh no, what have I done? And I, you know, basically my mind was, well, there's gonna have to be some justice here because this ain't my old white van. This is a vehicle I like. Right until the insurance companies got involved and there would be a little justice involved. And, and I tell you all that because I think many of us, when it comes to our own sin, we just think of it as the old white van, Right. Anything I do, any sin I commit, it's not a big deal, right? It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a gigantic thing. And it doesn't require any justice or, or any blood or, or, or a cross or the wrath of God or anything like that. Now, a lot of times when other people sin against us, right, that's like hitting around four or, you know, something, something nicer than that. Hey, but what Scripture says is that all sin, every single sin is an offense to God and punishable. It is... It is an offense to God because every sin is a rejection of God. It's rejection of his standards. It's rejection of his purposes for us. And it is more horrific. Here's the thing. It's more horrific than we know. And this is why scripture says that the wages of sin is, what does it say? It's death. This is what's so hard for our culture to understand. Why would that be? Why would it be that all sin deserves divine judgment and, and, and deserves death? See, it's not because God is overreacting to our sin. It's because we minimize it. It's because we play it down. It's because we just don't understand how horrific sin is. Sin is rejecting the very one who created us and and his claims over us and his standards and his purposes for us. And sin leaves us, Scripture says, spiritually dead, disconnected from God, thirsty and hungry. In fact, in Isaiah 55, it gives us this this picture. It says, come everyone who thirsts. It's speaking spiritually here. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He's just making the point here that that our souls are empty and we have this tendency to try to fill our empty souls with things that will never satisfy us. We try to fill our empty soul with maybe people. You know, if I could just get a girlfriend, if I could just get a friend, if I could just have a spouse, if I could just have kids, it will fill the emptiness in our soul. How many people have tried to fill their empty soul with relationships only to find out that even as great as those relationships might be, they will never replace the hole in our soul that is left from being disconnected from God. Or maybe we try to fill it with education, with, with diplomas, with a GPA, or maybe with a hobby or with a sport or with entertainment or jobs. If, if I just get a good job, if I just make enough money, if I, if I just buy enough stuff, I'll finally fill that void in my heart. But our soul, our sin has disconnected us from God and our souls are, are dead. And we lack, we lack the spiritual mind and we cannot really understand the world that we see around us. It, it doesn't make sense to us. It's confusing to us. Uh, how many times have you had a conversation with a non-Christian? You're both looking at the exact same situation and it's clear to you. It makes sense to you. They're like, it doesn't make any sense because they don't have spiritual eyes to see what is real in the world around us. And sin has infected every part of our world. It's infected our relationships. I mean, just look at the world around you. Just look at the people around you and the issues they're having in the world that we live in. And how do you explain all the hostility, all the anger, all the friction that exists, all the misunderstandings? It's because our relationships have been infected Our purpose has been infected. We don't know why we're alive. We don't know what our purpose is, so we have to come up with a purpose. Our knowledge has been infected. Our worldview has been infected. Our, Our priorities, our ethics, our governments, our health. Jesus' death on a cross helps us understand how much God hates sin, how horrific sin is. We think to ourselves, it's not that bad. We look at the cross and we think, we might be missing something here. In 1 Peter three eighteen, it tells us this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We, we talk about this, what Martin Luther called the great exchange, that Jesus takes your sin Uh, your filth, your shame, your guilt, he took that upon the cross where he blood suffered and died for that sin. He paid the penalty for it. He took our curse, being separated from God, the condemnation that comes from that, the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us, and he took it upon himself. He took your sin and you get his righteousness. That is a right standing with God. We understand that Jesus suffered in in two ways. He suffered physically, but he also suffered mentally, spiritually. We often think of the physical part of it. We think of the the Roman flogging. I uh, I went back this week and rewatched the movie The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if you've seen that. I hadn't seen it for years, and and when I was watching it, I remembered why I hadn't. Uh, in fact, the f- when it first came out, I just remember thinking, "There's no way I'm going to go see that movie in the theater. I'm going to have to watch it alone with the curtains drawn, <laughs> and so I can I can pay attention and I will be free to just weep over this thing. And I don't want to do it in front of everybody. And so I waited. But I'm watching it again this week and just watching the the, the physical suffering, the the brutality, the flogging that that takes place. The whole goal is to inflict maximum Pain to the victim while keeping them from death, because they wanted them to go through the entire crucifixion, Jesus' flesh being ripped from his body, Jesus being being punched in the face. I'm again watching it this week, just Im- imagining people punching Jesus in the face, ripping out his beard, spitting on him. And, and the whole time I just kept thinking, you know, if, it, if, this a, if this was like a DC, you know, comic movie, at one point he would jump off the cross, wouldn't he? And he would just let them all have it. But he took all of it on the cross for you and for me. The, the bl- loss of blood, the physical exhaustion, being nailed to the cross, the pain slowly suffocating. But it wasn't just the physical part of it. Even worse, they say, was the the spiritual suffering that took place. Scripture says that all of us were under a curse for our sin. This this idea of a curse um, in the Old Testament, it just simply means that we were not under the blessing of God, that because of our sin we were accursed, that is, we were separated from God. The worst possible fate that that we can encounter, and Jesus became the curse for us. He took upon himself all the wrath of God. Some, some commentators talk about the wrath of God like a, a, just a storm that comes wave after wave after wave upon Christ for our sin. In Romans 5, it tells us this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. Notice that, from the wrath of God. It says that he, we receive justification through the death of Christ that means that we are right before God. That God's wrath against sin and the necessity of judgment has been met. Again, again if we, we think, why was God so angry about our sin? All I can really say at this point is, it just tells us that we, yet, we don't yet understand how terrible sin is. In Isaiah 53, it describes it with a little more detail. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity, the sin of us all. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Another way we talk about it is that we have been offered the grace of God. That through Christ, we can be reconciled to God. We can be made right with God. That we were enemies, and yet we can be right with Him. Through the death of Christ, God brought enemies into a relationship with Him. It's grace. It's an unearned gift. And so we say that the gospel teaches us that that you are worse than you thought you were. But you are also more loved than you could possibly ever comprehend. And this is the other side of the gospel. And until we really understand how horrific our sin is, the, the grace, the love of God, right, just doesn't, we don't really understand it. We need to understand one to understand the other. God loves you more than you could possibly comprehend. In John three seventeen, it says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You might remember when we were going through the Gospel of Luke, we talked so many times about the fact that one of the things that religious leaders hated about Jesus was that he hung out with sinners. They called him a friend of sinners. And when they called him a friend of sinners, it was meant to be an insult. We hear it and we think, oh, that's, that's one of the cool things about Jesus. But that's not how they meant it. They meant it as an insult. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus reaching out to immoral people. I would, which the religious people that they thought was terrible, was horrible. But it says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He was a friend of immoral people, of irreligious people. We, we know that uh, he hung out, it says, with prostitutes and with adulterers. We, we read a story about a woman who had five husbands and had so given up on marriage and now she was just living with a guy. And Jesus deigned to talk with her and to share the gospel with her. We know that he hung out with the outcasts of society, with lepers, with the sick, with with tax collectors, which were considered the scum of the earth, with people like Matthew and Zacchaeus who were detested, people who sold out their neighbors and their family for a few dollars. And yet Jesus called one of them to be his disciple. And 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it tells us this, in this the love of God was made known among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In spite of all our sin, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is just a big word to mean that, to to make atonement. To pay the price, the penalty for our sin. To satisfy, to put it another way, to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. The wrath of God. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. We don't say that a lot in our society today. But the wrath of God, the, the anger, the righteous wrath of God against sin. Through Jesus' death. Scripture tells us that it makes reconciliation possible. That it makes it possible for there to be peace between God God and us. Jesus' death on the cross reconciles us to God like nothing else can do. We can't be reconciled through being good enough or or rituals or rules or religion, but only through the grace of God, grace alone that comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, and dead. Now I want to bring up one more thing. And on your notes, uh, I'm calling this the asterisk phrase. So I want to talk for a minute about what we mean by that. So there is a phrase in the Apostles' Creed that oftentimes there's a little asterisk by. Um, I really, really struggle with whether or not to include it in the Creed. and In the end, I decided to, and that is this phrase that he descended into hell. And um, the very first week, when we went through the creed, I had several people going, what's this whole thing about Jesus descending into hell, and what's this all about? So I just want to explain the little asterisk to you and, and why I included it. When we talk about Jesus descending into hell, uh, first of all, we should note that the earliest versions of the creed did not include this statement. It wasn't in there. If the first versions of the creed were written around 180 or 190, uh, it wasn't until 200 years later that this statement was included in the creed. And so you know, people wonder, well, well, why was that? Well, I think it was probably to deal with some heresy that was coming up in, in around 390, 400 AD. So just a couple things to explain here. Uh, first of all, when we talk about things like, like hell, when we think about that specific word, um, there is a word in the Bible, uh, Gehenna, which is the place of punishment. It's, it's the word that we usually translate as hell, a place of punishment. That is not the word that we find in the Creed. The word in the Creed is the word Hades. In fact, some trans- translations of the Creed will say that he descended into Hades, uh, or descended into death, or descended into hell. Hades is different from Guiana. Hades is not the place of, of punishment. It is like the Hebrew word sheol, which is a reference to the grave or the place of the dead. So the simplest meaning here would be this, that, that Jesus had a physical body and that that physical body died and was placed in a grave. That would be the, the simplest understanding of what it's saying in the creed. But the question is, why add it 200 years after the creed was first written? Well, again, probably to deal with a heresy that was coming up at that time that was saying that Jesus never had a body, that Jesus was only a spirit who appeared to people. And that when he went to the cross, he didn't physically die because he didn't have a body. And when when he was buried, again, he wasn't dead. He didn't have a body. But that would also mean, for instance, that there was no resurrection as well. And so it was added to the creed to deal with this heresy that said Jesus didn't have a body. Now there's a lot of different interpretations. And I want to mention a few really quickly, we're not going to go into detail here, but just in case this is interesting to you, um, there's several popular interpretations of what the creed means when it says that Jesus descended into hell, or into Hades. Now some people think what it means is that Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath while he was on the cross. This is the view of John Calvin, who believed that Uh, When he hung on the cross, he was forsaken by the Father, and he experienced the full torment of hell. In other words, on the cross, Jesus faced everything that hell has to offer. Again, this is a view that John Calvin and other Reformed uh, theologians believe. That's one view. Another is that Jesus literally went to hell between his death on the cross and his resurrection. He went to hell, uh, and he did all, there's all sorts of versions of what he did there. He plundered, he preached, he judged, he broke down the gates of hell. A lot of ideas here. One of the problems with this view is that Jesus told the thief on the cross, remember he said, today you will be with me in paradise, you will be in the presence of God. There's a third view that says that Jesus went, didn't go to hell, but he went to Hades which is a place, uh, many believe, where Old Testament saints and believers who died during the earthly ministry of Jesus uh, await their Savior. And when Jesus went to Hades, uh, Hades turned into paradise at that point because of his presence, and he proclaimed the gospel and, and the kingdom, and that he was appointed as judge uh, over uh, the imprisoned spirits. And then there's a fourth view that says that simply all this is doing is affirming that Jesus physically died, And then in doing so, he shared the fate of of all humans, that is all of us, who die. Or another translation is this, he descended to the dead. In fact, you can find a a lot of translations today that put it exactly that way. The point is this, he had a real physical body, that body suffered and died on a cross, and he was physically buried into a tomb, and then he will eventually physically rise from the dead. Wayne Grudem puts it this way, I think he explains it well. Christ, in his death, experienced the same things believers in this present age experience when they die. His body remained on the earth and was buried, as ours will be, but his spirit passed immediately into the presence of God in heaven, just as ours will. Then on the first Easter morning, Christ's spirit was reunited with his body, and he was raised from the dead, just as Christians who have died will, when Christ returns, be reunited with their bodies and raised in their perfect resurrection bodies, to new life. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. I thought it would be good for us to close our time this morning together by, by taking communion. And I want to invite you um, to grab uh, the elements. If you didn't get these, um, we have some on the table out in the foyer and you can just grab some uh, while I talk here for a minute. And uh, I thought this would be good. So I, I mentioned to you that I watched uh, The Passion of the Christ this week, and maybe you've uh, watched the movie. It was put out by Mel Gibson years ago. And uh, as, as I watched it, I mean, it's, it's difficult to watch. It's difficult to, to view. The movie begins with this really intense scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and then it follows Jesus being arrested. Um, it, it shows him being struck in the face. There was something just so difficult about watching this that people would, I don't even know the word to use, <laughs> not, not even the nerve, but just that they would strike their maker, their savior in the face, that they would laugh at him, that he was mocked by the religious leaders, their creator, that, that they had People who lied, who gave false testimony about him. And that he would just endure it. The fact that he just endured it. Think of all the things he could have said. All the things he could have done. The legions of angels that he could have called down. And yet he endured it. Being condemned for blasphemy. Slapped in the face. Spit upon. Punched some more. He's questioned by Pilate. He's sent to Herod who wants to see him do some, some miracles, to answer some questions. When he doesn't do that, he's sent back to Pilate. There's, there's the releasing of Barabbas over Jesus, and then the, flo- the, the flogging of Christ. It just feels in the movie like it goes on for an hour. The agony. The people yelling to crucify him. And, and then just the process of crucifixion itself. I was reading um, an account by Albert Moeller this, this week. He was talking about going and watching the movie before it came out. He was asked to go and give a little preview of it. And, and this is what he wrote about watching The Passion of the Christ. He said, how could a person, so he describes people around him eating popcorn and, you know. He says, how could a person watch such a scene? The depiction of the crucifixion of the Son of God while eating popcorn, nachos, and sipping on Diet Coke. And then I realized that they did not understand the gravity of this historical event. Even the people who put Jesus to death failed to grasp the significance of what was happening. In 1 Corinthians 2.8, it tells us this, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But we understand. So we don't take this lightly. This taking of communion is a very, very serious thing that we do. And it's a perfect opportunity for us to consider that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. That his body was broken for us, and his blood was shed for the, for, for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to read uh, a passage of scripture for 1 Corinthians and then give you um, some time to meditate and think about this. Scott's going to come up and you can join him in a song, you can continue to pray, and, and when you're ready, you can go ahead and take communion. But let me read this for you just to set the context. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself then, And so we did the bread and drink of the cup. And I don't know, maybe you came in here this morning a little complacent about some sin in your life. Maybe you've been treating it lightly, like it's just an old worthless white van, like what's the big deal, what's the offense, what's the foul? But it's the very sin that Jesus willingly suffered so that you could be forgiven. Maybe there's something you need to confess this morning. Maybe you need to believe this morning that the blood and body of Christ can actually forgive your sin. Maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you feel like there's something you've done and you've never really felt forgiven. You still feel guilty. You still feel shame. And you need to believe this morning that through the blood of Christ, through faith in Christ, you are free. And you are forgiven. You don't need to feel shame or guilt, but be filled with gratefulness and joy. If you are in Christ, you are fully forgiven. There is no sin, no sin, that is greater than the blood and the body of Christ. So I want to give you a few moments to pray, meditate, to confess. And when you're ready, go ahead and take the bread. Go ahead and take the cup. So God's going to lead us in song, and then I will close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your Son given to us for Jesus Christ, Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried but who also rose from the grave. We thank you for the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, so that we could, through faith, by grace, receive the forgiveness of our sin. And that today, Father, though we are faced with uh, the, the horrendous nature of our sin, the reality of what it is that sent Christ to the cross, and how horrific that experience was, We also know that he did it for the joy set before him, that we might be made children of God, that we might be your sons and your daughters. And so, Father, in that we rejoice today that you have made us yours, that we've been reconciled to you through the work of Christ. May we walk from here today with joy, rejoicing in in the Savior that you have sent to us for us, who died for us, was buried for us and who rose from the dead for us. And we rejoice in the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.